This message is entitled, Job's Counselors, and is given by Dr. James Hicks. I'd like for all of us to have a word of prayer together, and I'd like for all of you to lead simultaneously and quietly, and I will voice our prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you're showing us, teaching us collectively as part of your body. I thank you for your life in us and our life in you. I thank you that we can counsel with the mind of Christ. I thank you that all our needs are met in him. I thank you that you have control of this situation, this hour, and this time that we have together as we continue to live in eternity. And I would ask that you'd show us what you'd have us to know and you'd give us the additional grace to follow up on what you're saying in this time so that we might come to see more of what is going on about us and know how to be separate from it. In Christ's name, amen. Lee suggested that I say very briefly uh, a word of testimony about my background. Um, I was born in 44 in McKinney and grew up in Conroe down near Houston. My dad and, and all is a dentist, practices there in Conroe now, and his dad was a dentist, was the oldest practicing dentist in the state of Texas some years ago and died this past Christmas at the age of 96. My mother's dad worked with uh, Humble Oil Company, later became Exxon, and worked with them 36 years, retired back in the 50s and passed away in 66. He was probably the greatest Christian man I knew as I grew up as a child, my mother's father, Granddad Price. And I had been interested in working with people as I grew up. And uh, in high school, worked some in the county jail, working with the people in the jail. And then as I attended schools and got my bachelor's and my master's in psychology and sociology, I worked uh, in counseling situations uh, both in the public schools, just as a volunteer. Worked with mentally retarded children, some adults, and continued to work in the jail. And then when I completed my master's degree in 68, worked in the prison in Texas as a psychologist for three years. And then went to A&M and worked on their staff as a counselor, Texas A&M University, and did my Ph.D. there in educational psychology. And left there and moved to Tyler three years ago and established practice and started teaching part-time simultaneously. And um, the part I want to zero in to is that as I began my freshman year experience in college in 1963 or 62 in the fall, 62, I came to a place where I came to the end of myself and a fellow named Dr. Sam Kanata, a medical missionary for Southern Baptist and so on, that knows that it's been called the Keswick Message, the same truths that we're talking about here as Christian counselors, the Galatians 2.20 concept. He came to our campus where I was a freshman and shared this testimony that I had never heard. I had been a Christian for nine years, but I had never heard this message. And as he shared it, I listened to him. And I, I cut classes and everywhere he spoke, excluding the ladies' dormitory I attended <laughs> for three days. And after he left, it was on February the 6th, 1963, that I went outside of the dorm one night down to the gymnasium and I sat down there and prayed and 
and received what it was he was talking about, even though I never could and haven't to this day understood it. Um, didn't have any particular emotional feelings one way or another. But that was my freshman year, and then in 63, and then up and through the rest of the 60s, the next six to eight, seven years maybe, um, I continued to know that truth and share it with people. But as I worked on my doctor's degree, having been in prison three years and started working on my doctor's degree, I decided that there's a way that psychology and this message, dying to self and being alive to God and the resurrected life and all that, there's a way that these two come together. I don't know how and I don't know where. But somebody's got some books on them. I just don't know where they are. And I'm, gonna, I'm not writing a book, but I'll, I'll begin to work on this myself and see if I can't find a way to, to pull the strength of psychology, people helping people, into this Christian life thing. Didn't work. Didn't make any progress on it, but I continued to look at it and compare and contrast the two. In April of uh, last year, a man named Devern Frumke came to Tyler and spoke, and traditionally, or what the book that he used while he was speaking was a book entitled In the Splendor of His Ways. It's a book on the uh, Gospel of Job, and I didn't missay that. And it's a book that um, shares what I want to share with you in the next few minutes. It shows how some people came to Job in his situation, in his crisis. And in that crisis situation, they shared what they knew to share with him probably had good intentions and certainly were rec recognized by the community as being helpers, people in the helping profession maybe. But what they shared was not of God, and it didn't alleviate or do anything for Job's situation. And then after they left, Job still was where he was found by them, and a fourth person came on the scene, and he shared the kind of counseling that we're sharing and talking about here and dispersing this afternoon to go back to our places of service and mission fields and so on, and continue to share with people, Christ's life. And so what I want to do is very briefly tie in an overview of the kinds of therapy that are going on, not in detail, and by no means doing thorough rundown of them, and show you simply how they fit together, and then show you how that they did not begin at the beginning of the 1900s with Freud and with these other people. They began in the angelic conflict before the foundation of the world. And the reason I couldn't get psychology and the Christ life message to, hom to harmonize, homogenize, and become one with one another is because they have different spiritual origins. They didn't prior to the fall of man, but as of that time, they became separate. And no matter how much education you or I may have, there's not a thing apart from God's Holy Spirit that I can do to help someone else. I may produce and did in a private practice situation. There's not anything I can produce that will produce change in that person, although I have many times, and you could and I could still, create improvement. But improvement without Christ is not change. And improvement without Christ is really in the long run a curse. Uh, Job was smart enough he didn't fall for it. Let's try to put it to you this way. There are three levels of experience that psychologists look at. Being predominantly 
two-part model of man, that man is uh, body and man is personality, then they, most psychologists look at, at a human being, a client, a person that they're going to work with, a patient, whatever they want to call them. They look at that person as if they were two parts. And I'm not going to take the time to adjust to the psychological position by looking at man as two parts. I'm going to go ahead and put a three-part model of man up here because God created us in his own image. If you look at Romans 1, you'll see that the smart people in the Day of Judgment are not going to have any excuse because they saw the Trinity everywhere they looked. I'll take just a moment here on this. If you look at the molecule of water, H2O, there are three molecules. That's a Trinity. Water can be found in three states depending on the temperature. It's a gas, a liquid, or a solid. It's not an accident you have three joints to your finger. You've heard people talk of the forebrain, the midbrain, and the hindbrain. Not an accident. You say, well... There are three layers to skin, and there's this, and there's that, and the other, and their body, the human body is made in really in, in the, the idea of solid, like teeth and bone, liquids, and tissue, three different kinds of areas. And people specialize in those three different kinds of areas about the human body. But look, you know, I only have two eyes. That's true. You have two eyes physically to give you binocular vision, which can give you depth perception. You have two ears. That's true also. can give you something about distance and direction as sound comes to you. But there's a third part there. You have spiritual vision, the capacity for it. You have spiritual hearing, or the capacity for it. You have um, spiritual breathing that goes on, even though you have two lungs. Uh, your reproductive system, be you male or female, is in two parts, but you're designed to spiritually reproduce. There's where the third one is. So we go right back into the Trinity and all creation, back in Romans 1 and other places. I don't want to spend time pursuing all that. We could take a week to look at where God has placed the Trinity. But what he says in Romans is that these smart alecks that have seen the Trinity all along are going to go to God and try to play dumb. And on the judgment, they're going to say, well, I just never did hear those things. They say, well, what did you do for a living? They say, well, I was a lab technician. They say, well, what did you do? And they won't be able to talk except for threes. <laughs> So the point I'm making is I don't want to back up and pretend you don't know what you already know. I'm going to go ahead and use a three-part model of man. We'll have the body section. We'll have the, the spirit section, which is in three parts, intuition, conscience, and fellowship. And I don't want to stop and take time with that. But we have been looking at body, spirit, and we have been looking at uh, the personality, our soul. It's in three parts also. And so we look at the will, we look at thinking capacity, and we look at emotion or feeling capacity. Now, what I want to share with you is that in the level or in the work, the field, the profession of psychology, the study of man, the study of the soul, the study of the psyche, the study of the personality, that there are three prominent areas of psychotherapy, psychology and all, going on now. Now, Paul represents the medical model predominantly. And there is a counterpart to it that does not, is not taught in the school of medicine, and it's called behavior modification. Behavior mod, or B-mod, they call it, as an abbreviation. The idea there is that you want to positively and negatively reinforce a person's overt behavior. The head of the Department of Psychology at Harvard, B.F. Skinner, in his book Walden II and some other writings that he's had about freedom and philosophy and so on, his position is essentially this. 
You are not even a two-part model of man. You are a one-part model. You are a body. What I see with x-ray, through surgery, and visually is all there is to you. You do not have a mind. You do not have thinking capacity as such. It is simply an electronic function of your brain tissue. You do not have the capacity to choose. It is the hardcore, conservative, literalist, fundamentalistic behavior modification approach. You don't choose. You didn't choose to wear the clothes you're wearing right now. You simply responded to the strongest stimuli in light of the learning patterns that you have accumulated since you were born. You're wearing blue, you're wearing green, you're wearing red, or whatever you're wearing. It was not by choice. You say, well, I know. You see, the person I'm married to doesn't keep my stuff washed and caught up. I just had to wear what was left. <laughs> well, B.F. Skinner says that what was left in this business of choosing that person as a mate and all these other things that you would explain as the choices that brought you to wear what you're wearing right now are not true. That is not what happened. And he goes on and, and tries to show and indicate in his writings that you are an animal and that you simply are responding to the stimulus response bonds that you have been taught since you were born and technically even before you were born as you had prenatal learning, you know. All right, so he's getting into punishment and, uh, and rewards and praise and that kind of thing, and he's saying that's what determines everything that's going on. So he is a strict environmentalist, and it's out of that kind of teaching at specifically that university and others that people such as John Kennedy and others who came from that sort of school and those kinds of adaptations in the 60s, early 60s, are prone to say, well, let's get into some strong environmentalist programs. If we could change the ghetto environment, we'll change the people in there because we'll change their behavior. It hasn't proven to be true, but uh, it was a false assumption from the beginning. So anyway, they are strong on behaviorists. The behaviorists are very strong on environmental kinds of atmosphere. And if you want to change your behavior, your overt behavior, which is all there is to you anyway, then you simply change the things that are available to you to respond to. You want to outlaw, uh, well, if we, it, the behaviorist way of dealing with tobacco and smoking and all that stuff that, you know, that they're talking about right now in the Carter administration would be pretty simple. Make it against the law for it to be produced. And go out here and talk about taxing and all that. Just go out here wherever it exists that the, that the government, federal, state, county, local, all government levels are responsible for destroying its existence. And then these smokers won't be responding to it because it won't be there. Remove it from the environment. That's the cure. Of course, it doesn't work, but anyway. <laughs> if we took smoking, if we took tobacco out of cigarette smoking, people would be smoking wrappers in the packages. <laughs> you, know, you know that. So there's another, there's another form of therapy called transactional analysis. Transactional analysis, the people who have studied it say, well, that kind of became popular in the early 60s. Psychiatrists in California, Eric Byrne, and some of these other people who were trained under Freud earlier, the psychoanalytic stuff back in the earlier turn of the century, that's where it came from. Well, I've already told you about that, and I'll come back and tell you more about it in a minute. Transactional analysis strength, though, does not deal with overt behavior. They'll get at that, but they deal primarily with your thinking skills. They divide you up as a person into your parent, your adult, and your child which is simply a new paint job for the earlier concepts of, uh, we'll say the parent is the one responsible for making decisions, telling you what's right and wrong and all that stuff. Freud calls it the superego. The adult is the information part of you, the central core part of you 
that does not deal with the critical kinds of stuff and doesn't deal with the fun stuff of the child. The ego is the part of you, the, the adult is the ego part of you that sort of is in the center zone, so to speak, and these others relate to it. And then the child, obviously, is what he called the id or the fun part, the part that's all time rebelling and getting off into stuff, but is a high part of your energy system. And the TA people in the early 60s started coming out with their books, and they have some 20-some-odd books out by different writers. And what they're doing essentially is they're saying, if you'll come back and get in touch with what you're thinking and put some handles on it, I don't care what you call it, call it ego, call it adult, call it child, call it id, call it all these things, but let's put some handles on it. Let's create a vocabulary, and let's become familiar with it. And if in the morning you're getting the day started off and... Um, the parent, one of the parents would say the father, tells the young, the young child or, the, or one of the younger members of the family, uh, you better get in here and eat your breakfast or you're going to be late to school. And the mother's been taking uh, TA therapy classes at the church, and she says, well, um, you know, I feel, like, I feel like you're parenting him pretty heavily. I think it's probably going to interfere with his day because he's going to have to try to deal with this criticism you're giving him. And wouldn't it be more adult... If you could just say, uh, Daniel, we're going to leave for school in about 10 minutes. If you'd like to eat breakfast before you go, you probably want to get busy with that soon. <laughs> and deal with it in a rather factual way, instead of you should, you ought, you better. So anyway, that's the emphasis of where they're coming from. And they're saying, get your thinking straightened out. And if you get your thinking straightened out, then... Your behavior and all your feelings and everything else will, will come, come into being and everything will be smooth. The other area down here has to do with uh, your feeling or your emotion. And the Gestalt approach, which sort of came from Germany in a way, it is the approach that says, look, everything you do and everything that you're experiencing is very deeply tied into your feelings. Your feelings is what's really going on, and, and that's what needs to be dealt with. And if your feelings could be straightened out or dealt with, the rest of this would really take its proper priority and shape. All of your circumstances would make sense to you and so on. The war in Cambodia was not an intellectual decision on the part of the president. It has to do with bedroom activity or the lack there between Nixon and his wife or whatever. It was a feeling decision. He just felt aggressive and thought... Let's drop a few bombs on some country today. Who could it be? <laughs> but it has to do... You read Psychology Today. I'm not, I'm not saying anything derogatory or, or quoting anything. Psychology Today magazine had articles just to that effect back in the 60s. They're still writing them. But the Gestalt approach was founded by another atheist fellow. Founders of all these essentially are agnostic, atheistic people. But the guy's name was Fritz Perls. He trained, as did the TA innovators, under... Freudian leadership back at the earlier part of the century. And he says that, you know, what you're experiencing now, uh, your feelings and the things that you're out of touch with concerning your emotions, that's what's missing. And as a therapist, that's what you ought to be providing to people. And if you get them in touch with their feelings, their experience, their awareness, and the now of them, their lives will straighten out. Their crisis will make sense. Uh, they'll quit being destructive and so forth, both to themselves as well as to others. And thus you have an oversimplification of the three areas that are predominantly discussed and dealt with in therapy. None of them are directly concerned or interested in spiritual matters. Predominantly the agreement is it doesn't exist, and if it does exist, it's either something that you thought up 
The belief is stated this way. People create God in their own images. That's why we have all these different denominations and concepts and religious literature and all that. And that if there's a spirit and all that, it's just a function of some aspect of your personality. So let the, let the churchgoers have that. They need that. Let them have that. And let's go from here. But they believe that thinking is, is the area that needs to be predominantly dealt with. Or the belief in therapy is that feeling is where you must start and, and wrap everything up. Or the more simplistic and scientific approach is behavior modification. And what I want to share with you very hurriedly is that in the book of Job, that situation came about. Job's situation came about because God knew it was a way to bless Job. And he was the one that cranked up the conversation with Satan. And Satan was the errand boy that did the uh, dirty work or did the, did the things. But he could not, and it's still true today in your situation in mind, he could not do anything but what he didn't get permission from God first. It's where the boundary lines were. And the thing that upsets Satan as much as a lot of other things is that every time he gets ready to play a game, he has to ask God, what's the name of it? <laughs> what are the rules? Where can I play and how much, is it, how much is the expense going to be this time? Then he leaves angry, defeated in advance, and he sort of knows that, but he just won't accept it. And uh, I really think that, you know, at one time there was a possibility Satan could have become a Christian, but he just didn't want to. Want to do it his way. And, um, of course, it's, it's getting kind of late for him now. Um, <laughs> so he, he told God, after God told him, he said, uh, God, uh, okay, Job, that'll be fine since, yeah, okay, Job, all right, fine. So what can I do? So we can do anything but take his life. Can't have his life. I said, okay, I'll think up some real good things. said, I'm going to get him, I'm going to get Job to quit praising you and honoring you, and I'm going to get Job to depend on his personality, and I'm going to get Job to depend on what he can do physically in his own strength. And I'm going to get him, I'm going to prove in the outcome of this this thing that we're doing, Job being the experimental animal at this point, I'm going to prove that Job is following you because you're blessing him, not because of who you are. And any other animal would do the same. Cattle would do that, or anyone else would do the same thing. You feed them, you do these things for them, and so they follow you. And that's the only reason they follow you. They really do not have spiritual capacity or dimension. And they are not acting upon it. And so I'm going to prove that Job follows you because of what you do for him, and I'm going to take away everything you do for him, and he is going to curse you. He's going to really, he's going to really show you how bad a mistake you've made in even making him. And so God said, well, go ahead. And so he did all these things to Job in one day's time. Then, after the dust settled, your helping profession comes on the scene. And the first one was Dr. Eliphaz. Dr. Eliphaz shows up, and he has his master's degree from somewhere, his doctor's degree from somewhere and something. And he comes up, and he, uh, he's really be my favorite. He would be the one I would have wanted to come first to. And uh, he's the gestaltist. He is the gestalt therapist. And he shows up on the scene, and he talks about the dream he had. And he said, you know, I woke up, my hair standing up on the back of my neck. And it was a mystical experience. They ought to make a movie out of it. And he was talking about all this emotional kind of thing that was going on. And he said, I, I believe I've got the answer. I've got the therapy you need. Of course, I realize you're going to have to pay me later since you don't have anything. But, I mean... <laughs> 
<laughs> he didn't say that. He just hoped it happened. <laughs> if what I'm telling you works, you're going to make it and you'll get well. And when you get well, you'll, you'll do something for me good and you'll tell all your friends and all. But then if it doesn't work, it won't make much difference because you're so close to dying that I just won't tell anybody you came. I won't take notes and put it in the file cabinet. It won't be any record of it. And we just kind of forget it all anyway. But he dealt with Outwardly, he dealt with mysticism, and he told Job, myst mystically, you must look for the answer. Uh, I don't know if Dr. Eliphaz went to church or not, but if he did, he would have enjoyed going to the charismatic kind of a church. And I have very close friends that are charismatic and all that stuff, whatever that means. But sometimes the weakness of that particular approach to doing something is that, that you're saying, I get to know that God has now filled my life because I have this gift or I do this thing or I have this sensation. I feel different. It's back to that same strength and that same appeal which is potentially a deceptive weakness. And I have a friend that, that, I, that I, you know, he was telling me, James, you know, really, I really, really believe if you would speak in tongues and all, it would do so much for you. And I said, and that's true, you know, I'm sure it would. I don't know what it would, but I'm sure it would. <laughs> if I did that, and then came up in an accident somehow, an automobile, where neurologically I was damaged and my throat or whatever was paralyzed, and I couldn't speak, what would that do for my spiritual proof? What if? He didn't have any answer for that. I just God wouldn't let that happen. I said, well, I guess we could transfer it to my toes or something. I could wiggle my toes, and if my toes tingled, I could, that could be my internal proof that I had this spiritual feeling of God. And what I'm trying to get him to see, and I believe he will, is that if you can walk by feeling, which is in your personality, you are not walking by faith, you're walking by sight. And if you walk by sight, it's, it's sin. It makes difference how good it looks or how, how much it changes your productivity or whatever it is. So that was Dr. Eliphaz's approach. He talked about dreams. The people that I have on the board up here who do the most dream work, dream interpretation, dream analysis, and all that sort of thing, are the people who are in the gestalt, psychotherapeutic kind of movement now. So um, they get you to go back and re-experience your dreams. Fritz Perl said this about dreams. He said, dreams are very simple to explain. They are messages from you, about you, directed to yourself. Now, if there's any way you can get any more egocentric than that, <laughs> write it on the back of a card and send it to me, because that's, that's about as much of I as you, as you can work into one sentence. The second... Uh, therapist that showed up on the scene was Dr. Brother Bildad. He was, he was neat. He came up on the scene and he said, um, I've got the answer. i got the real answer. i got it right here. He said, what you've been missing out on, Job, is the answer, which is it's behind you. In other words, it's in tradition. You got out here and you had this experience and I know you're just broken over it and you're having all this heartache. But if you want this thing to come together, if you want your life to make sense and to be able to pick up the pieces and go from here, then what you're going to have to do is to come to understand the tradition of man. You're going to have to get, you're going to have to get in with the way that, that, that it needs to be. And uh, he talked about uh, if you would understand, you know, if you would think about it, if you would study the tradition, your intellect would be what would put you back together. And so what he's really talking about is the man or the thinking capacity of man. He's dealing with the thinking skills. And he's saying, Job, you've just had so much happen here in the last 
the last few hours or days or whenever all this thing happened. You just really have not ever had a time to just sit down and think about it. But if you would, and begin to structure this thing and put this thing together, it makes sense to you. And God was not in Bildad. And the third one, moving right along, was uh, Dr. Zophar. He showed up. And Zophar was, uh, well, likely he was the oldest of the group. Probably was a, a big man or whatever. But he commanded an awful lot of respect and all by maybe his own physical statue. I don't know. He probably had a, a, a disc jockey radio announcer type voice, you know, that would qualify him in 15 minutes to be employed by an FM station that plays nothing but classical music. <laughs> and he came up, and his introductory remarks was something to, to this tune. Job, we've known one another a long time, and we served in the military together. You can remember the times that, that these other tragedies have happened to our friends and other people that were serving in the armed services and all with us. He said, I'm the oldest of the three that's come to you. And I have been as patient as I know how, and I've now just grown to the end of my wits. I've listened to this guy who wants to talk about dreams and mysticism and emotion and feeling. The guy looks like a hippie, smells like a hippie, and I don't want to have anything else to do with him. And if you're going to pursue his counsel, that's fine. I'll leave now. And I've listened to this smart aleck from the university. He's come and talked about philosophy and getting the traditions and thoughts and all that right. And he said, I want to tell you where it's at. And I didn't come to make a suggestion. I came to tell you that what you need to do is you need to line up with a chain of command. You need to line up with the authority principle. You have not submitted to God. That's all that's wrong. You've been out of the military too long. We, shouldn't, we should have stayed in longer and you'd have gotten this principle. But had you stayed in the military long enough, you would have known that if you'll simply submit to these circumstances, that this thing will come, will come around. You, you have done something overtly, and God picked up on it. I wasn't there. I'm not God. It's not my responsibility. But you did something in your overt behavior, and God is obviously punishing you about it. It's just that simple. And he stressed, he called it doctrine, but it was not doctrine. It was dogma. And he stressed his dogma because he said, that is the answer. You have got to do this. And he proceeded to tell him that God rewards the good and he punishes the wicked. Chapter 20 and so on. So he's dealing with the concept of behavior modification. Behavior modification did not originate at the turn of the century in Russia with the experiments with Pavlov's dog where classical conditioning was discovered as a principle and later it was developed more in this country and John Ballas Watson brought it over to this country in the early 30s and wrote a book entitled Behaviorism and all that. It didn't, it didn't originate in the last 80 years. And it does not... Your crisis and your experience and your, your circumstances, Job's included, do not have to do with you doing right or wrong, God punishing and rewarding you. Jesus set that straight. He said, the, the, right, the right, uh, rain will fall on the just and the unjust. And the seeds will fall, you know, amongst everyone. But some will see and some won't. Those that have he ears to hear, let them hear. And so, Zophar was a splendid fellow. Had an awful lot to share and offer. But uh, he was missing the message too. And then there was a period of silence. Nothing much happened. And the youngest of the four people who came to Job, he came. He came quietly. He did not have necessarily the credentials, didn't serve in the military, 
hadn't been to university possibly, was not all that in touch with his feelings, maybe. But he showed up and he was the most humble of the four that came. He was the most patient. He wanted to wait until everybody who had the answers got out of the way. And he was the, he was the freshest that showed up. And he was the most teachable. And furthermore, he was available. He was willing to be used of God. And he came to Job and he said, Job, I'd like to share a testimony with you about what God's been doing in my life. He said, God's been, been revealing to me several things. Number one, he's revealed to me that he has everything under control. And he still does. And he has everything under control in your situation. And the second thing he wants you to see because he's been showing it to me and he impressed it upon me in love to come and share it with you that you are his son you are one of God's people you have chosen him you're born again you're trusting him you have salvation through Christ who hasn't come yet but he will you believe on him already and you are his son he wants you to enjoy what he is doing to thank him in all things, to praise him in all things, and to be grateful for what is going on, even though the circumstances are not as you and I would design it. Something is going on. God is doing something, and he is in control. He loves you. He's, you are his son. He wants your praise, and he wants your, your, your adoration for who he is, not for what he has done. And lastly, he said, my testimony to you, Job, is that God is letting all of this happen to deliver you from your dependence on your outward doing and on what you can think and what you can feel. God is letting all of this happen simply to cause you to live and walk in the faith walk and to live and trust Him by faith and to operate out of your innermost being, which is your spirit. And that's all God's doing. And God loves you and God knows that you are a person that he could demonstrate something that would probably even be written up in a book somewhere and maybe several hundred people will read it and profit from it for maybe four, five, ten years to come. <laughs> and there's just no telling what God's doing out of this. But trust him and know him that he is in charge. He is doing this. And that God loves you, he loves me, he is in control. He is simply showing you, in essence, the cross of Christ. He is delivering you from yourself. He is delivering you from Adam's life. And he's doing it through these circumstances. And if you'll believe him and accept him by faith, just like Jack was talking about last night, the principle of receiving what God's doing. You know, if you come to a place as a counselor where you can say, regardless of what I understand or don't understand, regardless of what I feel or don't feel, regardless of what I do or don't do, or anyone else thinks, feels, or does. God is in control, and I accept that now by faith. Go ahead and make my tombstone out to that accord, and I don't even care if you can't find anybody to bury me there. That's my testimony. And when you come to that particular place, you have entered into a place of power that only God's people know by His revelation. And so essentially what happened is he completed the faith cycle. And I'll close with this illustration. And you'll be able to use this in your counseling.
I borrowed this from Brother Mandy Beasley, who saw this as he had three terminal illnesses and four other illnesses that weren't terminal but were far more than a nuisance in 1970. Hospitalized for nine months, and everyone, including Christian friends and doctors, told him, you're not going to live long, but but um, seemed like God's probably doing something. I don't know. And he he saw this faith cycle, if you want to call it, and he realized that God wants Job and you and me and counselors and his people to go in this direction. And you'd like to see it as if it were a spiral, like a spring. And then when you go all the way through this faith cycle and come to number six, you just go right on to number one and get a new, get a new situation and take off again. And it's a spiral that will just lead you right on into the heavenlies. And the brother, I forget his name, that left us without dying back in the Old Testament. I think he just got on this wheel and decided he didn't want to go to sleep. <laughs> decided he'd just rather go on and see how far he could go. And became so spiritual he couldn't relate to the rest of us and left. <laughs> Satan would have you go in the opposite direction. He'd have you start and get around to number six, but then he'd have you go back. And he'd have you never find salvation. He'd have you never find deliverance from yourself. He'd have you never find what God would have done in your life, your purpose for being created. Divinely designed situation is in number one. A divinely designed situation. Number two, desperation of yourself but primarily we're talking about your physical strength and your psychological strength so write that up any way you want to in that pie shaped section of number two desperation the end of your physical and psychological strength whatever that means that just means you come to a place where there's not any other way it's going to work Job if you'll recall as he had all of this happen to him in one day, still didn't have everything happen to him because he knew three good therapists. He knew three people that had fine counsel. Lots of people went to them. And he knew he, he still had them. And he thought, I could either make an appointment with them or probably when the word gets out as to how bad my situation is, they'll just drop by. And they did. And they had their counsel and they shared traditional psychotherapy with him. Exactly what's going on is being extremely popular and uh, patronized and so forth today. And so he hadn't come to the end of himself when all that happened to him. He had come to the end of himself when those three friends had come by. Maybe they'd been church members too. They may have even been Christians. But uh, Christians get deceived. And they came by and shared theirs and they left. And Job thought, if my wife was here, I'd tell her that I'm not any better off than I was. She's gone too. Now my three friends have been by. Did the very best. I took notes on what they said because I didn't hear any paper, but I remember what they said, <laughs> and it didn't help me. I'm still the same. And Job came to the place, and God used the last brother to do this. Revelation of the cross and Christ's life. Revelation. If you're to be used in Christian counseling, my firm belief, as young and as immature as I am, is that you are going to be used to reveal the cross and Christ's life. Of course, you'll need a good testimony as a, as a uh, demonstrator kit, and it'll be yours. 
You can't lead someone where you haven't been. We talk about in the penitentiary that we need uh, rehabilitation. And if you look up Webster's Dictionary, we don't want rehabilitation. And if you look up Black's Law Book Dictionary, we don't want rehabilitation. Because both of them agree it's returning to a former state <laughs> of being or doing. A person who's been a criminal, been in Adam's life ever since they were born, don't even want to be rehabilitated and don't need to be. And that's what we've got tax dollars going out for day after day. The Word of God says just as plain as it can say that the Bible was given for correction, reproof, and so on. One state in this country had a law on the books simultaneously with another law on the books that said it is impossible and unconstitutional to give a person in the public school systems of our state a copy of the Bible because it's discriminatory about other religions. The same state had, the same, had another, book, another law on the books that said every inmate that comes into the state penitentiary in this state must receive one copy of God's Word. They throw it in trash can, it's okay. <laughs> Number four, the appropriation. There's some other words that fit there just as well. Confession, receiving, believing, obeying, walking, but it means that you respond, and you respond with your will. You do not respond necessarily emotionally, that may be affected, but you do not respond with your emotions, you do not respond with your thoughts, you do not respond with your behavior. You become willing first, and then if those things come, that's fine, and if they don't, then that's God working in your life. That'll work out. But number three is to find the meaning of the cross, the meaning of the burial, the meaning of the resurrection. And then number four in the faith cycle is to put that, receive that, receive him into your reality. Number five will be the manifestation. That means that what God showed you in number three that you couldn't do in number two is now reality as a result of his working in number five. The concept of fruit bearing. You have now, in number four, become a branch, and he's now the vine, and you are just, quote, so to speak, hanging around. does not mean you're not to be av available and obedient, and possibly you'll work longer hours than you did before. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you not producing the fruit. Christ is, and, you, and it becomes manifest, number five. Number six, uh, Satan has his way, and he comes in, and God lets him because God uses him at the end of everything he's doing. And that's the temptation to take number five and run around four, three, two and go back to one and handle it yourself. It's the temptation. And so when God does it and you knew God did it, the temptation is to word your testimony this way. Well, you see, I had this bad situation and for a little while I couldn't handle it, but then I figured out how. And all along, God did that. And so Satan would have you take that that God has given you in number five, that manifestation, and go backwards around with it to number one, and stay in the self-life, stay walking by sight and not by faith, and don't ever get in on another situation that God wants to bless you with. God would have you say, as in the book of James, chapter, first few verses and so on, well, when you see this temptation, don't, don't be deceived, just be excited, because Satan's already working, figuring you've got something. And just go right on forward with it and say, God, I thank you for working that last one out that hadn't even hardly gotten known to anybody else yet. And I'm ready for another one here, whenever you are. And you move that on into the next one. 
So you keep moving in the clockwise position until you run out of time, move you smack into eternity, and there won't be anybody to understand it yet. <laughs> we need to dismiss to do these things we need to do. <laughs> the divinely designed situation. Of course, the worse it is, the better it is because the quicker it'll break down your personality and your body. <laughs> For further information about other messages on cassette or printed materials, write to Cross Life Expressions. 1455 Ammons Street, Denver, Colorado, zip code 80215.